Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, There Will Come Soft Rains. Today is April 8th, 2020. We are in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic. And this week is the week during which experts have predicted that mortality rates in the United States from the coronavirus will be at their maximum. Today is the middle day of that week. As I record these words at 6.45 in the morning of April 8th, there is a full moon in the sky. It is a pink moon. Now, if you look at it, it's not really pink, but pink moon is the name of the full moon that has been given by tradition to the full moon in April. The full moon in every month has a different name given to it by tradition. It is not only a pink moon, it is a super moon. Tonight at sundown will begin the Jewish festival of Passover. In two days, we will have Good Friday, and the following Sunday will be, of course, Easter. And all of these things coming together made me start to reflect last night on how temporary our lives are, on the ephemerality of existence, not just for us individually, but also and ultimately for our entire species. We cannot imagine that we will forever maintain our perch on top of the food chain. But something tells us deep inside that the time will come when we will be supplanted. And whether the cause that will eventually usurp us is from a virus or a plague or a meteor from outer space, whether the impetus for our eventual destruction will come from within or without, yet we understand that that time must sometime come and that event must sometime come to pass. As I was contemplating these thoughts, the literature that I love so well and the poetry that is so dear to me began to intrude itself upon my thoughts and impress itself upon my soul. Tonight's podcast will be different than prior podcasts. I am now in my third week of issuing daily podcasts from behind enemy lines. This is part of my attempt to be with you in spirit, if not in body, in voice, if not in actuality. While many of my listeners are sheltering at home during the coronavirus pandemic. And what I want to do tonight is to share with you some of the literature and some of the poetry that has been called to my mind during these moments of reflection. Wordsworth titled one of his poems, Intimations of Immortality. What I will be covering tonight is Intimations of Mortality. It was T.S. Eliot who, in the very first line of his famous poem, The Wasteland, wrote, April is the cruelest month. And following Paul's lead in the New Testament, that the poets are next to the prophets, I think that T.S. Eliot may have been on to something here, perhaps something more than he knew. But strangely enough, the thing that got me started down this road of reflection was a commercial on TV. And it's a commercial that you have probably seen. It has to do with the automation and the technology that is available or can be available in your average household. And this commercial showed people talking to their appliances and specifically the kitchen faucet. And just by speaking words, the kitchen faucet turns on and gives a specific amount of water, the amount of water that is requested. And when I saw this commercial last night, in the context of this being the deadliest week of the coronavirus in the United States, it made me think of a famous short story written by Ray Bradbury. And the title of that short story is there will come soft rains, hence the title of tonight's podcast. That story was written by Ray Bradbury in 1950, and it was quite prescient as to the types of technology that would be available in homes in his future. 
Well, his future has become our today. And as the story goes on, it talks about the fact that that technology in homes will continue to run even after there are no people around to run them. I'm going to end tonight's podcast with that short story. It's about five pages long. It's not too long, but before I get to that, I want to talk about the poem that was written in 1915 that inspired that story by Ray Bradbury. The poem has the same title. It's called, There Will Come Soft Rains. It was written in the middle of World War I. And though the poem does not talk about technology, it does talk about a future in which nature will carry on, even though there are no humans around to appreciate its beauty. This poem was written by Sarah Teasdale. It's a 12-line poem. It was first published in the July 1918 issue of Harper's Magazine. The poem imagines nature reclaiming a battlefield after the fighting is finished. The poem also alludes to the idea of human extinction by war, which was not a commonplace idea until the invention of nuclear weapons 25 years later. Here's how that poem goes. There will come soft rains and the smell of the ground and swallows calling with their shimmering sound and frogs in the pools singing at night and wild plum trees in tremulous white. Robins will wear their feathery fire whistling their whims on a low fence wire. And not one will know of the war. Not one will care at last when it is done. Not one would mind, neither bird nor tree, if mankind perished utterly. And spring herself, when she woke at dawn, would scarcely know that we were gone. So that is the poem, There Will Come Soft Rains by Sarah Teasdale. And as I read that poem last night, More poems suggested themselves to me. More poems dealing with a similar kind of theme. It's like Edgar Allan Poe says in his poem, The Raven. Then upon the velvet sinking, I betook myself to linking fancy unto fancy, thinking. And some of the poems that suggested themselves to me last night, I want to share with you today. This is another poem that was written in World War I. It was written by a fellow named Rupert Brooke, who was born in 1887 and died in 1915. My understanding is he died from dysentery on a troop ship, but he wrote a number of poems about World War I. And this poem, The Soldier, is perhaps the most famous. I will tell you, it is hard for me to get through it without tearing up because it is so excruciatingly beautiful. I'll do my best to soldier on. Here it goes. If I should die, which he did, of course, which is one of the things that makes this so poignant. If I should die, Think only this of me, that there's some corner of a foreign field that is forever England. Of course, he's an English soldier. There shall be in that rich earth a richer dust concealed, a dust whom England bore, shaped, made aware, gave once her flowers to love, her ways to roam, a body of England's breathing English air, washed by the rivers, blessed by sons of home. And think, this heart, all evil shed away, a pulse in the eternal mind, no less gives somewhere back the thoughts by England given. Her sights and sounds, dreams happy as her days, and laughter learnt of friends, and gentleness in hearts at peace under an English heaven. 
Another poem that I thought of was a poem written by Thomas Gray back in the 16th century. It's called Elegy Written in a Country Churchyard. And I'm not going to read the whole thing because it goes on and on, but I am going to read a few stanzas for you. It begins like this. The curfew tolls the knell of parting day. The lowing herd winds slowly o'er the lee. The plowman homeward plods his weary way and leaves the world to darkness and to me. Now fades the glimmering landscape on the sight, and all the air a solemn stillness holds save where the beetle wheels his droning flight and drowsy tinklings lull the distant folds. These are the first two stanzas that begin this poem. It goes on to talk about the fact and reveal the fact that the scene being described is in a churchyard, otherwise known as a graveyard. Beneath those rugged elms that yew trees shade, where heaves the turf in many a moldering heap, each in his narrow cell forever laid, the rude forefathers of the hamlet sleep. The breezy call of incense breathing morn, the swallow twittering from the straw-built shed, the cock's shrill clarion or the echoing horn, no more shall rouse them from their lowly bed. And this poem goes on to compare the people in this graveyard who are the forefathers of this hamlet, the hamlet that is nearby, the town that is close there. The people who were largely unlettered, probably illiterate, and comparing them favorably with the wealthy and with the famous, who likewise must come to this same end. And there's a very famous line here at the end of this stanza, and this is the last stanza I will read from this poem. The boasts of heraldry, the pomp of power, and all that beauty, all that wealth e'er gave, awaits alike the inevitable hour. The paths of glory lead but to the grave. And so that's, of course, the famous line, the paths of glory lead but to the grave. A sobering thought for all of us in a sobering time. There is no one so powerful, so famous, so rich, but that they will come to the same end. We sometimes wonder how the world could possibly get along without us. We seem to be so important as to the workings of our day-to-day life and the day-to-day life of others. But as my mother would quote Charles de Gaulle to me when I was younger, the graveyards are full of indispensable men. Now, of course, if I'm speaking about death, the one poet that has to come to mind is Emily Dickinson, who wrote by far and away the best poems about death. She didn't just write poems about death. She wrote some poetry about other things, most of it wonderful. She wrote the poem that starts with the line, Tell all the truth, but tell it slant, which always reminds me of General Conference. Tell all the truth, but tell it slant. She also gives her description of the Bible in another poem, The Bible is an antique volume written by faded men at the suggestion of holy specters. But as I say, she wrote many poems dealing with the subject of death, and perhaps the most famous of those is the one that goes like this. Because I could not stop for death, he kindly stopped for me. The carriage held but just ourselves and immortality. We slowly drove, he knew no haste. And I had put away my labor and my leisure, too, for his civility. We passed the school where children played at wrestling in a ring. We passed the fields of gazing grain. We passed the setting sun. We paused before a house that seemed a swelling in the ground. The roof was scarcely visible, the cornice but a mound. 
Since then, tis centuries, but each feels shorter than the day I first surmised the horses' heads were toward eternity. So that's Emily Dickinson's poem, Because I Could Not Stop for Death. And I have to admit, that's a creepy poem. But even creepier would be if we heard a general authority reading this poem in general conference. Imagine the cadence that would be used on this poem. Because I could not stop for death, he kindly stopped for me. <laughs> okay, that makes a creepy poem even creepier. But I long for the day when Emily Dickinson will be quoted in General Conference. Okay, now I want to conclude with the story, the short story, mind you, by Ray Bradbury titled, There Will Come Soft Rains, in which he actually includes the entire poem that I read at the outset by Sarah Teasdale with the same title. Once again, this story was written by Ray Bradbury in 1950-1950, 70 years ago. And interestingly, what Ray Bradbury is predicting is the state of technology and the state of humanity in 2026, just six years in the future, and more specifically on August 4th, 2026. I think it is amusing of how smart human beings can be to become so technologically advanced, and yet how foolish humanity can be to destroy themselves entirely. Here's the story. In the living room, the voice clock sang, tick-tock, seven o'clock, time to get up, time to get up, seven o'clock, as if it were afraid that nobody would. The morning house lay empty. The clock ticked on, repeating and repeating its sounds into the emptiness. 7-9, breakfast time, 7-9. In the kitchen, the breakfast stove gave a hissing sigh and ejected from its warm interior eight pieces of perfectly brown toast, eight eggs, sunny side up, 16 slices of bacon, two coffees, and two cool glasses of milk. Today is August 4th, 2026, said a second voice from the kitchen ceiling, in the city of Allendale, California. It repeated the date three times, for memory's sake. Today is Mr. Featherstone's birthday. Today is the anniversary of Talita's marriage. Insurance is payable, as are the water, gas, and light bills. These are all the sayings that are coming from the voice from the kitchen ceiling. Somewhere in the walls, relays clicked. Memory tapes glided under electric eyes. 8-1, tick-tock, 8-1 o'clock. Off to school, off to work, run, run, 8-1. But no door slammed. No carpets took the soft tread of rubber heels. It was raining outside. The weather box on the front door sang quietly, Rain, rain, go away. Umbrellas, raincoats for today. And the rain tapped on the empty house, echoing. Outside, the garage chimed and lifted its door to reveal the waiting car. After a long wait, the door swung down again. At 8.30, the eggs were shriveled and the toast was like stone. An aluminum wedge scraped them into the sink where hot water whirled them down a metal throat which digested and flushed them away to the distant sea. The dirty dishes were dropped into a hot washer and emerged, twinkling dry. 9.15, sang the clock, time to clean. Out of warrens in the wall, tiny robot mice darted. The rooms were a crawl with the small cleaning animals, all rubber and metal. They thudded against chairs, whirling their mustached runners, kneading the rug nap, sucking gently at hidden dust. Then, like mysterious invaders, they popped into their burrows. Their pink electric eyes faded. The house was clean. Ten o'clock, 
The sun came out from behind the rain. The house stood alone in a city of rubble and ashes. This was the one house left standing. At night, the ruined city gave off a radioactive glow, which could be seen for miles. 10.15. The garden sprinklers whirled up in golden founts, filling the soft morning air with scatterings of brightness. The water pelted window panes, running down the charred west side where the house had been burned, evenly free of its white paint. The entire west face of the house was black, save for five places. Here the silhouette in paint of a man mowing a lawn. Here, as in a photograph, a woman bent to pick flowers. Still farther over, their images burned on wood in one titanic instant. A small boy, hands flung into the air. Higher up, the image of a thrown ball. And opposite him, a girl, hands raised to catch a ball which never came down. The five spots of paint, the man, the woman, the children, the ball, remained. The rest was a thin, charcoaled layer. The gentle sprinkler rain filled the garden with falling light. Until this day, how well the house had kept its peace. How carefully it had inquired, who goes there? What's the password? And getting no answer from lonely foxes and whining cats, it had shut up its windows and drawn shades in an old maidenly preoccupation with self-protection which bordered on a mechanical paranoia. It quivered at each sound, the house did. If a sparrow brushed a window, the shade snapped up. The bird, startled, flew off. No, not even a bird must touch the house. Twelve noon, a dog whined, shivering on the front porch. The front door recognized the dog voice and opened. The dog, once huge and fleshy, but now gone to bone and covered with sores, moved in and through the house, tracking mud. Behind it were angry mice, angry at having to pick up mud, angry at inconvenience. For not a leaf fragment blew under the door, but what the wall panels flipped open and the copper scrap rats flashed swiftly out. The offending dust, hair, or paper, seized in miniature steel jaws, was raced back to the burrows. There, down tubes which fed into the cellar, it was dropped into the sighing vent of an incinerator which sat like evil bale in a dark corner. The dog ran upstairs, hysterically yelping to each door, at last realizing, as the house realized, that only silence was here. It sniffed the air and scratched the kitchen door. Behind the door, the stove was making pancakes, which filled the house with a rich baked odor and the scent of maple syrup. The dog frothed at the mouth, lying at the door, sniffing. Its eyes turned to fire. It ran wildly in circles, biting at its tail, spun in a frenzy, and died. It lay in the parlor for an hour. Two o'clock, sang a voice. Delicately sensing decay at last, the regiments of mice hummed out as softly as blown gray leaves in an electrical wind. 2.15. The dog was gone. In the cellar, the incinerator glowed suddenly, and a whirl of sparks leaped up the chimney. 2.35. Bridge tables sprouted from patio walls. Playing cards fluttered onto pads in a shower of pips. Martinis manifested on an oaken bench with egg salad sandwiches. 
Music played. But the tables were silent, and the cards untouched. At four o'clock, the tables folded like great butterflies back through the paneled walls. 4.30, the nursery walls glowed. Animals took shape. Yellow giraffes, blue lions, pink antelopes, lilac panthers, cavorting in crystal substance. The walls were glass. They looked out upon color and fantasy. Hidden films clocked through well-oiled sprockets, and the walls lived. The nursery floor was woven to resemble a crisp cereal meadow. Over this ran aluminum roaches and iron crickets, and in the hot still air, butterflies of delicate red tissue wavered among the sharp aroma of animal spores. There was the sound like a great matted yellow hive of bees within a dark bellows, the lazy bumble of a purring lion, and there was the patter of okapi feet and the murmur of a fresh jungle rain, like other hoofs falling upon the summer starched grass. Now the walls dissolved into distances of parched grass, mile on mile, and warm endless sky. The animals drew away into thorn breaks and water holes. It was the children's hour. Five o'clock, the bath filled with clear hot water. Six, seven, eight o'clock, the dinner dishes manipulated like magic tricks, and in the study, a click. In the metal stand opposite the hearth, where a fire now blazed up warmly, a cigar popped out half an inch of soft gray ash on it, smoking, waiting. Nine o'clock, the beds warmed their hidden circuits, for nights were cool here. Nine-five, a voice spoke from the study ceiling. Mrs. McClellan, which poem would you like this evening? The house was silent. The voice said at last, Since you express no preference, I shall select a poem at random. Quiet music rose to back the voice. Sarah Teasdale, as I recall, your favorite. And this is where the house reads the poem by Sarah Teasdale with which we started this podcast. There will come soft rains and the smell of the ground and swallows circling with their shimmering sound and frogs in the pool singing at night and wild plum trees in tremulous white. Robins will wear their feathery fire whistling their whims on a low fence wire. And not one will know of the war. Not one will care at last when it is done. Not one would mind, neither bird nor tree, if mankind perished utterly. And spring herself, when she woke at dawn, would scarcely know that we were gone. The fire burned on the stone hearth, and the cigar fell away into a mound of quiet ash on its tray. The empty chairs faced each other between the silent walls, and the music played. At ten o'clock, the house began to die. The wind blew. A falling tree bough crashed through the kitchen window. Cleaning solvent, bottled, shattered over the stove. The room was ablaze in an instant. Fire, screamed a voice. The house lights flashed. Water pumps shot water from the ceilings. But the solvent spread on the linoleum, licking, eating, under the kitchen door, while the voices took it up in chorus. Fire! 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 The house tried to save itself. Doors sprang tightly shut, but the windows were broken by the heat, and the wind blew and sucked upon the fire. The house gave ground as the fire, in ten billion angry sparks, moved with flaming ease from room to room, and then up the stairs. While scurrying water rats squeaked from the walls, pistoled their water, and ran for more. 
and the wall sprays let down showers of mechanical rain. But too late, somewhere, sighing, a pump shrugged to a stop. The quenching rain ceased. The reserve water supply, which had filled baths and washed dishes for many quiet days, was gone. The fire crackled up the stairs. It fed upon Picassos and Matisses in the upper halls, like delicacies, baking off the oily flesh, tenderly crisping the canvases into black shavings. Now the fire lay in beds, stood in windows, changed the color of drapes, and then reinforcements. From attic trap doors, blind robot faces peered down with faucet mouths, gushing green chemical. The fire backed off, as even an elephant must at the sight of a dead snake. Now there were twenty snakes whipping over the floor, killing the fire with the clear cold venom of green froth. But the fire was clever. It had sent flames outside the house, up through the attic to the pumps there. An explosion. The attic brain, which directed the pumps, was shattered into bronze shrapnel on the beams. The fire rushed back into every closet and felt of the clothes hanging there. The house shuddered, oak bone on bone. Its bared skeleton cringing from the heat, its wire, its nerves, revealed as if a surgeon had torn the skin off to let the red veins and capillaries quiver in the scalded air. Help! Help! Fire! Run! Run! Heat snapped mirrors like the first brittle winter ice, and the voices wailed, Fire! Fire! Run! Run! Like a tragic nursery rhyme, a dozen voices, high, low, like children dying in a forest, alone alone. And the voices fading as the wires popped their sheathings like hot chestnuts. One, two, three, four, five voices died. In the nursery, the jungle burned. Blue lions roared. Purple giraffes bounded off. The panthers ran in circles, changing color. And ten million animals running before the fire vanished off toward a distant steaming river. Ten more voices died. In the last instant, under the fire avalanche, other choruses, oblivious, could be heard announcing the time, cutting the lawn by remote control mower, or setting an umbrella frantically out and in. The slamming and opening front door, a thousand things happening, like a clock shop when each clock strikes the hour insanely, before or after the other. A scene of maniac confusion, yet unity. Singing, screaming, a few last cleaning mice darting bravely out to carry the horrid ashes away, and one voice, with sublime disregard for the situation, read poetry aloud in the fiery study. And all the film spools burned until all the wires withered and the circuits cracked. The fire burst the house and let it slam flat down, puffing out skirts of spark and smoke. In the kitchen, an instant before the rain of fire and timber, the stove could be seen making breakfasts at a psychopathic rate. Ten dozen eggs, six loaves of toast, twenty dozen bacon strips, which, eaten by fire, started the stove working again, hysterically hissing. The crash. The attic smashing into kitchen and parlor. The parlor into cellar. Cellar into subcellar. Deep freeze. Armchair. Film tapes. Circuits beds, and all like skeletons thrown in a cluttered mound deep under. Smoke and silence. 
a great quantity of smoke. Dawn showed faintly in the east. Among the ruins, one wall stood alone. Within the wall, a last voice said, over and over again and again, even as the sun rose to shine upon the heaped rubble and steam. Today is August 5th, 2026. Today is August 5th, 2026. Today is... And that is the short story by Ray Bradbury titled... There will come soft rains. It was the thought of that story last night as I watched that commercial on TV in the midst of a world pandemic that led me to this microphone this morning in my underground bunker with a desire to share this story with you, this literature with you, this poetry with you. This has been a departure from what I usually do here at Radio Free Mormon. Typically, it is facts and analysis, facts and analysis, facts and analysis. But there are other places from which truth may come. And in my opinion, the deeper truth, the more important truth, the eternal truth can be found in great literature. I don't know how my listeners feel about this podcast. I don't know if this is a welcome departure from what I commonly do or an annoying disruption from my regular podcast. What I would like for you to do is please go to RadioFreeMormon.org and while you're making a contribution there, please write a comment and let me know what you think about today's podcast and whether you would like to see more along these lines. At a minimum, I want to look at some of the poetry and some of the literature that I have read over the years and talk about how they apply to Mormonism. Because as I think about it, there's a lot in there that has application to the LDS Church. Today, I've read the poetry that has impressed me on Wednesday, April 8th, 2020, in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic. So once again, please go to RadioFreeMormon.org, leave your comments about this podcast, let me know what you think, and remember, wash your hands frequently with hot water and soap. Stay away from crowds, Maintain good social distancing of at least six feet from the nearest person. If you have to cough, cough into your elbow and not upon your neighbor. And together, we will lick this coronavirus. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon. A winter's day. Signing off the air. In a deep and dark December. streets below on a freshly fallen silent shroud of snow I am a rock I am an island I've built walls a fortress deep and mighty Friendship causes pain It's laughter and it's loving I disdain I am a rock I am an island Don't talk of love It's sleep 
after the slumber of feelings that I've died If I never loved, I never would have tried And an island 